Hello there and welcome back to our study of the book of Revelation. This is, I believe, our ninth lesson on Revelation and we're going to be dealing with chapter 7 today. We previewed a little bit about chapter 6 and 7. They're incredibly dramatic chapters and they are passages that cause a lot of people to kind of go off the deep end, so to speak, and trying to find these secret codes and these what, what all these numbers mean and things like that. I think we missed the big picture. So we're going to try to step back, get a bird's eye view of what we're talking about here. We are going to talk about what numbers mean in some instances because they're specific to the people who are writing and reading this, this letter, which is what it is, this book of Revelation. So let's dig into chapter 7. Let's look at verses 1 through 4. <clears throat> really 1 through 3, and then we'll, we'll tack on 4. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on the, any, any tree. And I saw another angel ascending and rising from the sun, or excuse me, descending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. Okay? Now, again, let's think about how they use language and how we use language. He says the four corners of the earth. We know there are no corners to the earth. The earth is round. And we might even say, and I've heard it said, that uh, they said four corners because they thought the earth was flat. This is their ignorance. No, no, this is how they spoke. The earth was not discovered to be round because of Christopher Columbus. Okay, It wasn't 1492 before we settled that. There was a lot of speculation about the shape of the earth as early as the time preceding Christ. There were philosophers and scientists who were observing that ships disappeared over the horizon from the bottom up as they got a certain distance. Using that distance, these people actually tried to uh, calculate the circumference of the earth. They were wrong, but later when we were able to do it, we found out they weren't wrong by very much. So there was this was not uh, a, a matter of their ignorance. It's the four corners because it's First of all, the number is important, and we'll get to that. But also, north, south, east, and west, four cardinal directions. They talk about the sun rising, but we know that the earth is just turning. The sun isn't going anywhere. But we still say sunrise and sunset, just like they did. It's not ignorance. It's the way language is used. And what is the point? The point is there are angels standing at all four corners, holding something back, holding back these mighty winds that would destroy and he, and, and he says, no, no, we're going to hold them back. That's why they're there. These four angels standing at these four corners, and they're not letting anything happen. And there's another angel saying, hey, hold it back. Hold it back until the time has come, until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. Now, let's not get too concerned about what that seal is or anything like that. But look at verse 4 now. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Um, it's important to understand that um, whatever we do when we interpret this wind, okay, um, there are four angels standing at the four points of the compass, stopping the wind from blowing. And whatever we 
interpret the, the wind to be, it should be noted that there is no place in Revelation at no point later are those angels going to move. God never tells them to move. They stay. So this is final, what we're reading here. There's not going to be somewhere later where God tells them to move out of the way. Um, so that the wind blows. God's angels are blocking whatever it is, and they're not going to fail, and they're not going to move. Now, God has some work to do before any wind blows. See, he intends to save his people. That's Revelation 7, 4. He intends to save his people. Now, the next several verses are going to list the tribes, where these 144,000 are coming from. 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes um, and, and that were sealed. There's a lot of this that's really strange in our Western mindset. And we need to unpack this very carefully, and we need to be cautious. And I, I want to say this. I don't, um, I don't speak against uh, any other faith, any other church. Uh, it's just not something I, I do. Um, there are a lot of good people that are a part of other denominations and other groups and that have other views that I believe are sincere Christian people. So I, I don't want to bash anyone. But if you've ever had much interaction with people who are part of the Jehovah's Witness, uh, part of that group, then this is a very important passage for them. The man who founded that group um, was self-taught. He taught himself to read Greek. He didn't teach himself particularly well, unfortunately. There are a lot of things wrong uh, with the theology uh, in that group and the way they interpret Scripture. I believe the ones I have met are very sincere, uh, and I accept their sincerity, but uh, they, we need to be careful. Their belief is that th there, there are going to be two classes in the next life. The 144,000 here that are sealed, they're going to be in heaven, and the rest of the faithful will live on a renewed earth. Now, if you take that as literally as they do, but if you push the literal interpretation of this passage that much further, then very few Jehovah's Witness are Jews. Very few of them have any heritage, if any, uh, at all, that, um, that comes from the 12 tribes. So, um, that's a challenge, right? That's a challenging uh, way to look at things. And so while I accept their sincerity and appreciate them, uh, there's some things wrong with how they've, how they've parsed this, this particular passage. Because we're not talking about a literal 144,000 from these literal tribes who are sealed for eternity, uh, for salvation. We're talking about something, and you have to understand the numbers and how they're used and the purpose of the author to really get there. Semitic cultures use numbers very differently than the way we use them, than the way Asian cultures or African cultures use them. Language and numbers are, are treated very differently. Um, and so our mindset has to be different. Each of those cultures has traditional ways of saying certain things. And so the Semitic cultures are no different. The people who wrote this were not stupid. They just used language in a way that seems different to us. So we're going to look at the numbers. Now, Understand there are shades of differences and contextual changes um, that can take place, but the ideas behind these numbers, there's standard ideas expressed by numbers in Semitic languages. So, quick example of that. Um, 
if you look at Psalm chapter 50, beginning in verse 10, um, uh, and, we, and by the way, we do the same thing, okay, with language. We, we, we use certain sayings, certain phrases, and certain numbers. Um, like, you, you, you look like a million bucks, right? We say that all the time. Um, you don't literally look like a million dollars. Um, you look good. That's, that's what we mean. Uh, here, in, he, here in chapter 50 of Psalm, in verse 10, it says that, that the, the cattle on, on 10,000 hills are his. Um, there's more than 10,000 hills. And there's more cattle on hills worldwide. But does it mean that just the cattle on those hills belong to the Lord? Or does it mean something else? Well, if you understand what the numbers mean to their culture, it means all of them everywhere. Okay, because it's not a literal 10,000 hills and cattle on those 10,000 hills. That means completeness. Okay, that mean, that, and, and multiples of that means emphasize completeness. They use numbers to express concepts and they use multiples of those numbers to express um, an enhancement of those concepts. And that's important to know. So let's look at some numbers. First of all, we have the number one that stands for unity. All right, the ability to stand alone. Uh, two is a doubling of strength, of power, of might, energy, courage. That's when we see the number two. The number three is holy perfection. Think about the Trinity, okay, or deity. Four is the physical world, and that one we see. Look there at the beginning of chapter seven again in Revelation. We see that there are four angels at the four corners of the earth, north, south, east, and west. The number four represents the physical world. Seven, that's perfection. That's a holy divine number. It represents complete perfection. And any multiple of that is meant to emphasize the meanings of, of both of those things. Um, so when we see in scripture, when, when Jesus says to forgive someone seven times seven, uh, or some manuscripts say 70 times seven, it all means the same thing in an infinite, perfect way. In an infinite, perfect way, you should forgive. Okay, that's what that means, because we're talk—we're not talking about forty-nine times, okay, or four hundred and ninety times. We're talking about every time, and that's the number they use to express it. When we get to the number ten, that means completeness. Ten represents a completeness of something, the fullness of something, and every multiple of ten would represent an emphasis. So when he says the cattle of ten thousand hills are his, he means all of them, the completeness of it everything. Uh, and when when we see numbers like 10,000 or 100,000 or, or we're talking about complete, it's complete. It's everything. It's all of them. The number 12 represents religion and it represents people of faith. So 12 tribes, 12 apostles, um, those kinds of things. And the number six uh, represents evil. It represents sin. Um, remember that the word sin is a, actually a sporting term, okay? Uh, it means to miss the mark. If we set out to, to hit a target and we miss, that's a sin. So when we sin, we have reached for perfection, but we've fallen short. And the number six is often used to represent evil or the falling short. The, the number three and a half, I know that sounds odd, but three and a half is also going to come up. It means an incompleteness. It means something that is out of balance. It means despair and confusion. Okay, it's that kind of uh, 
kind of idea. Now, let's get back into Revelation chapter 7 because we have a list of tribes here. Now, what is the number given? 144,000. 12 times 12,000. We're dealing with the religious. We're dealing with the faithful and the 12. Okay? So that, that's what we're looking at. Now, you look at verses 5 through 8, and I'll let you read that on your own. It just lists the tribes and how many from each tribe are coming. And you'll notice that the list is different than the 12 tribes given elsewhere in Scripture, the tri tribes of Israel, because there's a lot of differences. Tribes come and go. If you look through Scripture, there's about 20 different lists of the tribes because some come and some go and some move and some don't. And so we have different lists sometimes. Um, that was just the reality of their history. So don't get too hung up because people will, will park themselves on those four verses and try to figure out what that means. Why is, why is Dan not listed? Why is Ephraim not listed? Why is Manasseh and Joseph listed? Well, that's, that's the way the author wrote it because if you look through Scripture, it's very hard to find consistent lists of the 12 tribes because it was very hard for 12 tribes to consistently exist and to be a part of the list that mattered in their context. So do not park yourself on those four verses and miss the big picture. The important thing to us is that God will seal, save, and protect his people. That's the point. The faithful, 12, 12 tribes, 12,000 from each tribe. Is that a literal number? Is it a literal group? No. It means the fullness and completeness of those who are faithful to him. Those who are in Christ, the fullness and completeness of the righteous will be sealed, will be saved and protected. And this, this is a huge relief to those who were rejected by their own nation, their own culture, all too often sentenced to death, either by execution or exclusion. Um, and, that's, and, and that's meant to be an encouragement, that they are going to be they're going to be saved. They're going to be sealed. They're going to be protected. They're going to be taken care of. So the numbers themselves are actually very encouraging. 12 times 12 times 1,000. Um, we're talking about there's no stronger way of saying it than that. 12 times 12 times 1,000, 144,000. All of God's people will be saved. And that salvation will reach out to the four corners of the world, to the four corners of the earth. And his people will not be taken away. They'll not be snatched up. Uh, John chapter 10, verses 28 through 29. That I'm the shepherd and the sheep are going to know the voice of the shepherd and nothing will snatch them out of my hand. God intends to save all of his people from all over the world. Let's look at verse 9. Uh, John then looks out and he sees a number for which there is no name. Let's read. After these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out in a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and all the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might. Be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Um, so, <laughs> take a look. 
at verse 9. And look who God intends to save. A number that no one can count. It's too great. There's no way I can even estimate it. And where are they from? Well, they're from every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. Do you notice what's not mentioned there, by the way? Race. Do you know why? Because race is a social construct. We invented that. We decided that people were different based on skin color. And, and you know, red and yellow, black and white. Look, I, uh, that's not what anybody is. We're all genetically exactly the same. We're part of one race. There are differences that develop. Melanin, the shapes of eyes and facial features, sure. But from a genetic perspective, we're all part of one race. There, there's no two ways about it. We have certain differences. We're from different places and we speak different languages. But God never, in his word, never makes a, a difference on the basis of race because that didn't exist. That's a construct of society. And so it, it doesn't matter. God intends to save everybody everywhere that, uh, that belongs to him, that's, that is saved. Um, and I think that's beautiful. Look at all these people in white robes. What does that mean, they're in white robes? Does that mean they're perfect? That mean they're the pure? That mean they're the, the chosen? Uh, no, not at all. I mean, they, they, they didn't end their lives with moral perfection. That's not why they're wearing white robes. They're wearing white, white robes because that's been bestowed upon them by God the Father and the salvation that's in Christ because of their faith. Romans chapter 4, verse 3, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Think Abraham was perfect? You should try reading Genesis. He was far from perfect, but it was credited to him as righteousness that he believed God. We are made righteous by our faith in God through Jesus Christ. And they wear white robes, not because they've earned it, but because God gave it. Salvation is the gift of God, and he will give it freely, even uh, to those uh, who we, his children, judge unworthy, because we do that. There are those we look at and say, no, you're not, you're not getting in. You're not part of it. But God, even, even when we think someone's not worthy, God deems them worthy and intends to save them. Now, that's an important lesson for us to not, not do that. But it's also important to remember when someone judges you unworthy. When, there's, hey, you may have suffered a great deal in this life. It's full of suffering. Maybe you've had some things happen that you never wanted to happen. Broken relationships, um, uh, abuse drug, alcohol addiction, um, difficult relationships, divorce, whatever it is that you've suffered, um, understand that nothing can snatch you from the hand of God. And um, that this world is hard, but never let anyone tell you that you are unworthy because it's not their choice. It's not their decision. If you are baptized into Jesus Christ and you have your faith in him, you are saved period. Uh, and, and this doesn't mean we take sin lightly. This doesn't mean we don't strive to live holy and righteous lives. What it means is that we're going to live lives of confidence and pride, not in ourselves, but in God. This should make you proud that you have a Savior that can overcome all those terrible things and bring you home to be with Him. So boast in Him. Be proud in Him. Be confident in him. Um, let's keep reading. Verse 13. 
Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they and where have they come from? I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God, and they will serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer or thirst any more, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of water of the water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eye. The day is going to come when struggles will cease. The day will come when the robes will be white and the labors are over. We are pilgrims and strangers here on earth. And so our traveling days aren't done. We still have a ways to go, but they will be. They will be one day. Um, unfortunately, in this world, getting there is not half the fun. It's, it's a tough life. It's a hard life. Travel is dangerous. Uh, and it was dangerous for them in this time, by the way. Travel was difficult. It was dangerous. It was life-threatening on every level. You may not survive. That's been true up until maybe just 100, 200 years ago. Travel was a very arduous and scary thing because you didn't know what was out there, and the mode of transportation was tricky. But what, what Revelation chapter 7 shows us is that one day, we're all going to make it home. One day we're all going to make it home. When he talks about those who are sealed and talks about um, this idea, we need to not get too hung up on that, uh, what that seal is. People have argued over that for years and years and years. We're not, um, that that would be like Jesus coming into this room right now and teaching me something and bestowing wisdom and then we argue about what shoes he was wearing when he leaves. Um, the point of this, and it's very dramatic, uh, it's very dramatically expressed, chapter 7. The point is, this life is hard. It's full of dangerous, arduous uh, trials and tribulation. And I know there are people that have different interpretations of what the tribulation means. But let's stick with this for now. It's a hard life. It's a scary life. And in the end know that God is protecting us and he intends to save us as his children and there will come a time where we're brought home and that suffering will end the suffering will be no more I think this is interesting because we talk about and we sing the song no tears in heaven um, and I don't want to be picky here but let's let's just if you would allow me to say that there are going to be tears in heaven it, it seems God it, it's just that God will wipe them away. And he's not going to you know, wipe them away and say, what are you doing crying? Why? No, there's, there's no judgment and shame in it. God's there to wipe them away. The creator and the judge over all this world will bend down and he will wipe our tears away. The God of the universe, there's no shame. There's no finger wagging just his love and his hand. We're going to be taken home. We're going to be taken care of. We're going to be okay. That's the message of Revelation chapter 7. And it's a beautiful one. Challenging, but beautiful. 
Well, we're on to the seventh seal next time, chapter 8, and the trumpets. We're going to get the trumpets out. And I hope you'll join us for that at that time. Thanks so much. We'll see you next time.